because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. Well, last week we promised you that your host Alex Epstein would be back this week, but it turns out we are about as reliable as climate models are predicting the climate at predicting Alex's availability. So it is once again Don Watkins and Stefan Henna here to bring you this week's latest energy stories. Hey, Stefan, how are you? Hey, Don. I'm great. All right. Well, let's jump in. Why don't you bring us the first story this time? Yeah. Democratic presidential candidate and frontrunner Joe Biden has just uh, revealed his climate action plan, which he calls a plan for a clean energy revolution and environmental justice. And so in a presentation video accompanying this release, he said, science tells us that how we act or fail to act in the next 12 years will determine the very livability of our planet. And uh, he has a lot of uh, rhetoric in this uh, plan, you know, targeting the 1.5 degrees centigrade of global warming and uh, the green new referencing the green new deal as an important framework and so on and so he's he's really making up for his recent in the eyes of the greens his recent failures to address the issue with his with his big plan and his rhetoric and i just uh, want to quote something to start it up um, from this plan and biden said If the global temperature continues to increase at the current rate and surpasses 1.5 degrees C, the existential threat to life will not be limited to just ecological systems, but will extend to human life as well. So there's, uh, he also makes reference to the 2030 deadline, the next 12 years, of course, and so on. And my assumption is that this language uh, pulls very well with the key constituencies for him to win the, the democratic primaries. But I also want to talk about some content of the plan. So there are a lot of detailed items that I can't all summarize, but I I want to pick some of the more important ones as I see them. So the overall plan is to reach net zero carbon emissions in the United States no later than 2050. That's what we've seen from other candidates, somewhere a little more aggressive. I think uh, Inslee was a little more aggressive by 2045. But around that thing, that's in almost every green climate plan on the democratic side right now. And of course, it's also a huge central planning approach, as were the other plans uh, talking about investments in green energy, uh, electric vehicles, you know, new technologies uh, and breakthroughs that will facilitate this net zero emissions by 2050, utility scale grid storage, and so on. So a lot of of keywords and buzzwords in there. Notably, he also mentions, at least in a smaller role, uh, nuclear technology and carbon capture. So that's sometimes missing in other candidates' plan, uh, and that's that's noteworthy. Uh, Also noteworthy is that Biden wants to push other countries into achieving demonstrable uh, climate goals, and I like that point a lot because it's acknowledging that the U.S. is only um, responsible for about 15% of the global CO2 emissions annually. And that's that means whatever the United States does domestically, if the rest of the world doesn't do something similar, there's no chance 
that this strategy will do anything about uh, global warming at all, even if you believe the IPCC uh, modeling and uh, the predictions about you know global warming in the future. Even if you agree with all of that, if the U.S. acts alone, there's nothing this will change in, in terms of a global climate, of course. Um, and this is not acknowledged by a lot of the other candidates. Uh, and there are a lot of items on the international uh, uh, part of this, you know, where he suggests border tariffs to punish countries that don't comply with climate goals and so on. And we've discussed this in part in previous episodes of Power Hour, and, and the, these things are like very bureaucratic and complicated. So you know, if you're buying, if you're buying a, let's say, a piece of electronic from Southeast Asia, how do you know how much CO two emissions are in this, you know, commodity? Right. So you would need a giant bureaucracy that tracks all of the uh, sort of material flows and so on to produce this item to actually correctly punish those who still emit a lot of CO2 in manufacturing things. Um, another big thing, and I think that's that will be interesting for our audience specifically, is that it's very confrontational towards the fossil fuel industries. So the Biden plan asked for aggressive methane emission limits for the oil and gas operations. Uh, this has been recently in use a lot, methane emissions uh, I think it's less relevant, the rate of emissions for every barrel of oil or cubic feet of uh, natural gas has been declining in America. And I think last week we talked about a new assessment that the leak rate of methane in uh, natural gas and oil production isn't actually as high as previous estimate uh, had been. So... It also the plan will also force public companies to report on climate risks. This has been like a shareholder activism item for many years now. Uh, so the, the Biden plan would make that government policy actually. It wants to conserve thirty percent of American lands and waters, which has implications for oil and gas leases and, and other leases, potentially even coal mines. Um, and he will not accept contributions from oil and gas or coal companies or their executives. Uh, I think well, I mean, he'll accept contributions from their product. I mean, unless <laughs> yeah. he's having a 100% renewable campaign where, you know, they only have power whenever the wind is blowing and they're only, you know, like presumably they're using a lot of oil and gas to uh, sell himself. So, I mean, that's, I mean, the, like there's definitely the, the, it's quite disingenuous to say that we're not taking support from the industry when your whole existence, particularly for somebody as old as Biden, is dependent on the industry. Yeah, and considering that Biden is sort of the last standing democratic blue collar presidential candidate, you know, a lot of, of his potential voters work in the manufacturing industries, which of course depend on, you know, natural gas as a raw material and coal. Well, that's... Oil. That's what makes me curious about this move, because if the conventional wisdom was right and it was like that mainstream Democrats agreed with, you know, the most radical AOCs and Bernie's, then Biden should have never been, had this major lead that he does. And part of why people are, I think, attracted to him 
in part is just this idea of like, this is the guy who can win because he can appeal to these key states that Trump won, like my home state of Pennsylvania. But if you actually look, uh, there, there have been stories about this, but I just saw one today. Um, I'm trying to remember where it is, but th- where I saw it. But um, labor is very concerned with things like the Green New Deal because mm-hmm. they recognize that the that it would be severely harmful to them if something like the Green New Deal or Biden's Green New Deal light passes. Now, I definitely do not pretend to be an expert at this kind of like, you know, which uh, pressure group should you try to appeal to in order to win the Democratic uh, uh, nomination. But to me, like this seems, I, I would have been very impressed if Biden said something, you know, that was more... Um, realistic on climate and had taken a position that was not going to be as insanely detrimental to human beings just on the grounds of like, look, I'm trying to appeal to Americans at large, not to a handful of elites in, you know, San Francisco and, and DC. Yeah. I'm, I'm not an expert on democratic polling either, but I think there's a, there's a real risk for Biden to not get the nomination. So it's, there are two battles for him. One is, you know, winning the Democratic nomination, which, you know, arguably requires some radicalism on, on this issue. And then, you know, winning the general election. And, you know, one out for him is that part of his plan actually depends on Congress. And then he can say, OK, well, I have this bold idea, but Congress won't comply. Um, you know, so there, there's a lot of lot of complexity in this kind of of election signaling i think uh, and i don't know what the key states look like in terms of uh, voter polling exactly but so there are a lot of these items that i just mentioned you know that are just like directly anti fossil fuels and uh, you know he asked for you know a goal of 100% electric vehicles for light and medium vehicles over time and so on and it looks much more radical than anything that, you know, was in the Obama agenda. So Joe Biden built a lot of, you know, his experience as a vice president under Obama and, you know, look at our legacy. We were pushing for Paris and accomplishing that and so on. And now Trump comes in and, you know, unravels all of this, but I will bring us back on track and do this. And then, of course, the standard argument is, oh, this will not you know, don't look at this as cost. It's just an investment and it will actually save money and create new jobs and so on. So we will have we this new green powerhouse and export our superior technology and so on. So these are all the talking points that are, you know, in every Green New Deal type of plan. And uh, yeah, it's, it's quite radical. I'm not sure what the strategy is, but I think... Joe Biden is afraid that he will might lose the primary election if he's not radical enough on this. It's at least my my take on this. I mean, one lesson here, I think, though, is that uh, we've talked about how many Republicans are saying, like, we have to have a real position on climate, which I agree with. They do need to have a real coherent position on climate. But most of what that's amounted to is rushing in and saying, OK, we can live with a climate ta- or a carbon tax that you know also comes with certain strings attached, like lowering taxes in other areas and protecting 
uh, fossil fuel companies from potentially devastating lawsuits. And part of what I think is should be clear is that this will win them no love. Like this is not going to make the catastrophe say, oh, okay, they're really taking climate seriously because to take climate seriously is to come up with plans like this. And I haven't seen the reaction yet, but my guess, judging from what we've seen so far, is that this will be viewed by even Democrats as insufficient. That that the that the AOC wing of the Democratic Party is going to say like this is not ambitious enough, this is not fast enough, this is not socialist enough. Um, so I I I don't think you can formulate a position by looking at polls. I think you have to formulate a position by actually having an understanding of what human flourishing requires and how climate and energy fit into that. And uh, I would really like to see a pro-freedom energy policy instead of an appeasing, half-hearted, semi-socialistic response. So let's move on. So I was uh, this weekend listening to the Phillies game and heard a commercial for energy. And at first it sounded like your typical, um, you know, solar and wind thing talking about the, you know, clean future of energy. And then, but then it surprised me and then it said, we're not just talking about solar and wind. We're talking about LNG and the commercial went on from there, but they never told you what LNG was. And my guess was that, you know, they were they think, oh, if we say natural gas, that's a dirty word. But LNG, people are just going to, you know, go, oh, that sounds intriguing and awesome. Um, and so I was, I was thinking about that when I read recently about how the Department of Energy is rebranding LNG freedom gas. So last Tuesday, the department announced plans to increase exports of LNG uh, from a new liquefaction plant in uh, being built in Texas. And uh, by Freeport LNG of Houston, and if you look at the the re- press release talking about this, they decide that they are going to brand LNG as freedom gas. And so here's one quote: "Increasing export capacity from the Freeport LNG project is critical to spreading freedom gas throughout the world by giving America's allies a diverse and affordable source of clean energy." Um, and then Steve, Steven Winberg, the assistant secretary uh, for fossil energy, who signed the expert order, said in his announcement, uh, I am pleased that the Department of Energy is doing what it can to promote an efficient regulatory system that allows for molecules of U.S. freedom to be exported to the world. And I mean, this was mocked. I mean, freedom gas is not really the most eloquent statement, but uh, part of my view is that this is an example of placing branding above clarity. And I think the idea really amounts to that you don't really need to change people's minds about whether natural gas is clean or dirty or good for bad, good or bad for humanity. You can just change the terminology and look, terminology is important. Like you do want to use terminology that has positive connotations for positive things and negative connotations for negative things. Um, But terminology can't overcome ideas. So for example, at CIP, we use like shale technology instead of fracking. And 
uh, you know, labels like unreliables instead of renewables. But it's the whole context is that these are more clarifying, more accurate, more precise terms, and that they have to be used in a context where you're explaining and clarifying them. So if you just call something freedom gas, like that's not going to get anywhere. But if you explain that wind and solar are intermittent sources of energy that uh, can that and, and that that is a fatal flaw in order to be able to supply us with cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. That and therefore we should re- refer to them as unreliables. You're able to brand with clarity, and that can really stick with people and be powerful. Uh, versus if you just start like labeling, we're just going to call wind and solar, you know, awful energy or like European energy. Like, that does not do anything. And now it's true that the green movement will often use misleading terminology that seems to arbitrarily attach positive connotations to things. Um, and that are ne- that are negative and negative connotations to things that are positive, um, but that that you can't you cannot fight that battle by trying to do the same thing because they're only able to do that because we've accepted their framework. It's only because people accept the framework that yeah, fossil fuels are dirty because they have an impact that then the kind of misleading terminology or, you know, saying, oh, fossil fuels are an addiction and and things like that can work. Um, We, because people have accepted the green framework, then you have to actually overcome that framework. You, You can't just start labeling things with prettier names because people will say, oh, LNG, that sounds cool. But the first thing they're gonna do if they're actually interested is like look it up or ask somebody what it means. And they say, oh, that's natural gas. They say, oh, natural gas. Yeah, that's bad for the planet. Um, so you cannot win a war of ideas, you know, with a thesaurus. Any thoughts, Stefan? Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's particularly with LNG, that's very vulnerable because um, you know, liquefied natural gas has to be compressed and, and cooled down to its liquid phase, which you know requires additional energy. And so it's similar to the Canadian oil sands, right? Where, where activists will say, "Oh, oil is already bad," but now think about you know bitumen uh, in the oil sands has to be you know heated with steam and and processed much more than cr- normal crude oil. And, you know, then it has an even bigger balance sheet of negatives attached to it. It requires, it does the same, but requires more energy and so on. And, and so if you haven't, you know, set up this understanding properly with people, then, yeah, you will just see, oh, natural gas is just net, uh, liquid, liquefied natural gas is just natural gas with some additional energy requirement to transport it, right? So, and if they then have, an, have a negative view of natural gas, obviously exports of natural gas are bad as well. But I, I see some potential in maybe not freedom gas, but something similar. But so it, the export definitely has high potential to improve the lives of people trading with the United States and also has high potential of, you know, leveraging American influence for, for a positive impact so that you know you could work with that but of course you need to to win the the battle of ideas first so that people understand the value of natural gas actually what's your next story stefan 
the National Weather Service recently compiled its annual weather mortality data report for 2018. And uh, this was, you know, received in many media outlets uh, as something newsworthy because the uh, heat death were the leading weather-related cause in uh, 2018, but also over the recent 30-year average. And now you would think, oh, yeah, th this uh, heat-related death are a major cause of death. And, you know, this is, this is uh, quite important in a warming world, right? So we can expect more of that. So this, this seems like a catastrophe in the near future for U.S. citizens, a major health threat. And without deeper knowledge, of course, you would have this view and perceive it as an alarming message. But uh, what I found curious is that the weather mortality data report uh, had only 134 dead people from heat in the United States in 2018. So, um, and this was inconsistent with what I knew about the data in existence in the literature and uh, in analysis. So I want to uh, just give the take of a 2015 paper, which I found solid, which is Gasparini et al., and which analyzed 74 million deaths from 13 countries, including the United States. And the summary finding stated in part, most of the temperature-related mortality burden was attributable to the contribution of cold. The effect of days of extreme temperature was substantially less than that of that attributable to milder but non-optimum weather. So it, it seems like the reverse message, uh, actually cold is killing more people than heat, including in, in countries like the United States. And uh, so it's not the extreme events like this super cold temperature or the super hot day in Texas that is killing a lot of people, but these, you know, slightly, you know, below normal or above normal uh, weather events. So that's, that's an important information that didn't get conveyed in the media reports about this, this uh, report by the National Weather Service. And so the Gasparini et al. findings were also consistent with other findings, generally saying that cold is, you know, the bigger killer, it's more dangerous. And if you look at it in, in you know, the very big picture, you know, something, for example, in the, in the more case for fossil fuels, uh, the overall death burden from these weather-related events has been plummeting for the last, like, 100 years. And so it's it's less and less of a problem. And when you take the put this all into context, you would think, yeah, in a slightly warming world like we're experiencing now, the extremes are pro probably going to shift upwards into the more warmer thing. And you know, cold spells might be less of a problem in the United States overall. So the death burden overall, the relative risk might actually decrease from from extreme temperatures. And um, yeah, I, I found it curious that, that uh, the media is jumping on this one report and never really explaining how this uh, comes to pass. So the low death count number, it's probably what happened. And I haven't looked into the exact compilation of that, but probably what happened is they defined something like strictly attributable to you know, a certain heat event, like a heat stroke dehydration, something like that, where you can actually get, you know, sort of a death certificate explaining exactly, yeah, this is a, this is a cause of death. 
But you know, when you look at actual mortality numbers, there's a wider range of things that happen. You know, in in cold or heat uh, uh, extreme weather events, and I think that's important to explain how these numbers um, relate and and what's the context of this and what's the general relative risk and you know, if you only have 134 dead people, like this is on the order of magnitude, like a lightning strike kills about 20 Americans each year, right? So this is, if you want to to think about, will we have a more threatening environment in the in a warming future or less threatening environment, you would have to look at the bigger picture and, you know, put this in context and look at the most relevant things. And that's never done because... There's sort of an unholy alliance between, you know, a, a media narrative that wants, you know, clickbait headlines um, and this kind of climate alarmism. Yeah, I mean, it's like, so if the, if the idea is supposed to be that like a few more people on net die from heat than cold and, and therefore like that's justification for we just have to enact all these climate policies, like by the same logic, if this is really true, about you know heat and cold then well if we valued human life shouldn't we just round up everybody who lives in california and, and nevada and texas and ship them all you know up to north dakota i mean it would that would cost a whole hell of a lot less than what the green new deal policies advocate and i mean maybe you say watkins you're not taking into account the people who would die from the forced relocation and all of the other effects and my answer is Exactly. Like, as, like you pointed out, Stefan, I mean, these numbers are actually meaningless because if we were really trying to do some calculus of like, is it better to be a little warmer, or a little colder, you couldn't just take these direct deaths from heat and cold. Like you would want to know the full impact and like changing weather affects people in all, all sort of ways. I mean, it affects people in terms of how often they go outside and whether they ride their bike or walk or take a car, the kinds of sports they play, the, um, you know, how much of, uh, uh, you know, natural gas they'll use to heat their homes, which can carry certain risks. I mean, there's just a million different things that change in all these direct and indirect ways. And I would be skeptical that you could measure with any sort of precision or estimate with any sort of precision when we're talking, particularly when we're talking about numbers this small, which therefore means differences this small, like what the net effect is. And so the idea that we're going to figure out, okay, well, it's, you know, net 100 lives that we'll lose if the, you know, weather changes and therefore we're going to spend trillions to change the weather. Like that is just a totally wrong way to think about things, especially because you also have to contrast that with all the people who would die as a result of the Green New Deal type policies, which nobody ever talks about. And so, I mean, big picture, I think what we f want to know first and foremost, or what we do know first and foremost, is that to meet all of our needs, the fundamental things that we need are freedom and prosperity, including energy and technology. And then like once you figure out like, all right, we will protect those at all costs because they enable us to cope with anything from, you know, almost any sort of threat, whether natural or man-made, then you can think about optimizing things, right? So if, you know, you're, if you have a situation where you're in a society that is progressing in terms of its wealth and technology, and it is a free society, then you can think, okay, well, maybe it becomes cheaper to use nuclear and carbon capture than to build a bunch of dams to, to uh, deal with 
the influence of CO2 if we think that, you know, that is a, a real issue. But here what is going on is that people are searching for grounds to restrict freedom and prosperity and say that they're, uh, that they're bad things. And so they're not even pretending, or I mean, at least they're, they're very rarely even pretending to do a real cost benefit calculus. It's just pointing out these kind of like pot shots and assuming we can't adapt to them and assuming that, all right, well, clearly, if you don't want people to die, then you have to accept our whole policy program. All right. My next story. There were uh, two important shareholder resolutions from climate activists that just got voted down last week. At ExxonMobil, activists backed a measure to create a new board committee that would examine potential impacts of climate change on business strategy, financial planning, and environment. And this committee would have had the authority to review and oversee corporate strategy, including, or quote, above and beyond matters of legal compliance. And Chevron also faced a similar measure. And in both cases, the companies opposed the resolutions and the activists lost. Um, they got only 7.4% of the vote at Chevron, only, or, or I'm sorry, at Exxon and 8% at Chevron. And um, these, these are just two of the latest examples of something that's been going on and really picked up steam in the last few years and something that CIP has been helping companies deal with, which is this whole movement of shareholder activism and more broadly, the idea that companies should be evaluated and held to account in terms of what's called ESG, environmental, social, and governance criteria. And the kind of core argument made by these activists, because they don't just come in and say, hey, we're climate catastrophists and we want to put oil and uh, gas companies out of business. Um, what they typically say is like, look, there is this uh, energy transition that we're in the midst of that is quickly going to make these companies, it, 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 that is going to put these companies out of business if they don't change and adapt. And, and what that really means is, stopping new fossil fuel development and endorsing a bunch of restrictions on their own uh, use and development of fossil fuels. And I mean, basically it's if they don't do what anti-fossil fuel activists want, then they are going to face punishment. So the choice is either fossil fuel companies can kowtow to their latest demands um, and accept that we are and should be rapidly transitioning away from fossil fuels endorsing things like stopping new investment, supporting anti-fossil fuel policies, or they're going to become lightning rods for controversy, which no company wants. They're going to be labeled as deniers. It's going to be, they're going to see their ESG rankings suffer. They're going to get hit with these resolutions constantly. And companies, I mean, so far have in many cases, tried to accommodate these demands. Many companies have opted, okay, like some were forced to um, produce these climate reports uh, where they have to, you know, confess about their negative climate impacts. And um, the uh, other companies have basically said, yeah, we're going to do it willingly. Some companies are backing out of um, associations that, lobby for the industry, which is another one of the demands from these anti-fossil fuel investors. And the idea is that like, look, let's, you know, let's accommodate the the demands to the extent we can. Um, But you really can't accommodate them because the whole goal of the people pushing this activism is to put 
oil and gas companies, fossil fuel companies more generally out of business. And so if you concede, you, you're not going to get rewarded. Like at best, what happens is, and I, I think this is conscious on the part of some companies is, all right, well, if we, you know, give in to their demands a little bit more than our competitors, then we won't be the targets for a while. And so, you know, then you get to have a couple years while everybody else gets pestered to produce a climate report. And then you get a few years while everybody else is pestered to set targets for CO2 reduction and methane reduction. Um, and, but what more generally happens is it emboldens the opposition because the more that you concede that, yes, we should be restricting our CO2, then the more that they'll just point out that what you're claiming to do is not even close to what needs to be done. And given that you've conceded their basic premise that there's this imminent transition and therefore these imminent risks, uh, is much harder to fight back every step that you give in. And we, in our view, there's actually an opportunity for companies to take a different approach. And I mean, the details, you know, can differ from company to company, but the essential idea is to recognize that the world is choosing oil and gas because of its superiority um, to meet their needs and that any attempt to re to reduce CO2 to the extent that you as a company think that that is uh, an important goal that you want to support should and likely will happen in a way that is consistent with human progress rather than demands human regress. And that viewed in that way, far from rapidly transitioning away from oil and gas that like the world is and should continue to use them for decades and should be free to do so for decades because it is vital to their well-being. And claims to the contrary inevitably only look at the exaggerated negative impacts of fossil fuels instead of their full impact. And so what we think companies need to do is develop messaging and reporting that gives people the full impact, including the vital necessity and superiority of fossil fuels. And then if, if they do that, they, I think companies can address the legitimate concerns of, of shareholders um, who do wonder about the future of the industry and they can weaken the influence of anti-fossil fuel shareholder activists pretending to care about the health of these companies when really they're trying to destroy the health of these companies. Stefan, how, I don't know how closely you followed these stories, but what are, what are your thoughts? I found interesting that uh, some of the companies that were sort of attacked by this minority shareholder um, proposals actually were able to argue to the Securities and Exchange Commission um, that they should be able to block this kind of shareholder activism because it micromanages the company, right? So the shareholders are supposed to have the strategic interest of the company in mind and, and their own strategic interest, of course, as owners. And so, but they are not supposed to interfere with what management does in any kind of detail. And, and this is certainly one of these cases where you could argue that. And also from, from what I've seen in reports that were released, um, I think it was BP was one of the big ones that released something like the climate reporting issue. Um, what happens then is in their reporting, they will say, oh yeah, we are obligated to report on our, you know, like the threat level to our assets and so on. And the activists, of course, want to find that, you know, the company acknowledging 
some risk of stranded assets, you know, devaluing their shares or something like that. But they are then finding, okay, uh, look, our natural gas assets and oil assets are vital to the world. Billions of people depend on that. And uh, we don't see like big action, even if, if there's significant action by governments to restrain that, we still see our you know growth potential. Now, whether that's just made up stuff that they put into their you know projections or not, but I mean at least in this reporting they start to think about yeah you know we are valuable and and we produce valuable uh, commodities that you know keep a lot of humans alive and this is important and that's why we we think we you know do grow and I think they need to realize that they should grow. Right, they they should grow these assets that are you know life giving and not life destroying resources. I mean, the whole thing is just so disingenuous because it's like, all right, you know, if you thought that I it's uh, at the risk of making this comparison, but there's always the widespread comparison of like oil and gas or fossil fuel companies with tobacco companies, and it's. Like you would not buy a bunch of stock in tobacco companies and say like, all right, now you guys need to go produce air conditioners. And like, that's going to be your, your business model. Um, and that's a really smart investment. No, you'd sell your stock in tobacco companies because you think that they're immoral and you think that they're going to be outlawed or they're going to, you know, decline um, in, in popularity. Um, or you go and you promote specific anti-tobacco policies if you think that that's a good thing. But to demand that a company doing something that's legal, let alone something in the case of fossil fuels that are vitally positive. And it's, we think that you're a bad bet. And the main reason we think you're a bad bet is because we're also promoting policies that will make your business impossible. Um, so we're going to buy you and, and make you engage in these completely sacrificial self-destructive actions. Uh, I mean, it is, I mean, I'll compliment them and say it's clever, but it is so dishonest and it's so destructive to actual shareholders who actually value what these companies are producing um, that I think there's a real question here about like, is there a, is there a problem with just our general approach to um, ownership and the, the kind of powers that shareholders have uh, that you could even do this, that you could take a company that's producing something good and for completely ideological ideological reasons make it impossible for them to function what's your next story stefan heathrow airport in london which is by some measures the most busiest uh, airport in europe um is supposed to receive an expansion soon uh, because of the increasing uh, air travel traffic they receive and this might now be in jeopardy because uh, it collides with a net zero carbon policy by, of the U, uh, UK government uh, by 2050. Um, and green activists have pointed out, um, hey, government, you need to review this expansion and, and the license for doing so because this will definitely increase the CO2 emission footprint of the airport. And uh, I just want to read two quotes from, from green activists. One is Tim Crossland, director of Plan B, an environmental organization in the UK. The government can either take the necessary action to avoid climate breakdown, or it can stick to business as usual and expand aviation. But it can't have it both ways. 
And the other is uh, Sean Barry, I think that's correctly pronounced, the co-leader of the British Green Party. And he said, in this age of climate emergency, Heathrow expansion very clearly cannot go ahead. We need the government to acknowledge the emergency situation that previous policy choices have created. All building of new fossil fuel infrastructure has to end. That means banning fracking, stopping new road building, and of course, ending Heathrow expansion. Um, the government in a reaction, in initial reaction, has promised to carefully consider these uh, things in the decision to you know, move ahead with the expansion. Um, and so to me, this clearly indicates that for all the rhetoric they use, the Greens are not really interested in alternatives, doing things better or differently. You know, we talked about Joe Biden's climate action plan. All of these include some kind of alternative that might even turn out better, save some money, doing the same, you know, being prosperous, creating new jobs and so on. But here we see that what the Greens are seeing is, okay, aviation itself is bad. If you are a frequent flyer, you have a giant carbon footprint and there is no alternative. That's sort of what they implicitly acknowledge. And then if we you know, bring this to its logical end, it means, no, we can't have biofuels as an alternative that you know, might one day be competitive in, in prices. We can't have more and more travel you know, per capita, miles traveled in the air, on the roads or whatever. What they actually acknowledge is that energy will ultimately increase the human footprint on the planet. We will use more resources and they are against that. So they are ultimately against aviation or sort of any kind of travel, right? If you want to minimize the footprint, you need to get closer to zero and you can't do that if you expand Heathrow. No, if we would naively look at, you know, any kind of green rhetoric, like the Green New Deal, we would say, oh yeah, we just need to do things differently and then we are okay. We are, you know, protecting things like we have expanded our fossil fuel use, but at the same time, the rivers got cleaner, the air got cleaner, and so on. So progress is possible. It's just a you know, matter of balance. But what the, the real deep ecology greens are really after is ending human prosperity, ending human flourishing. It's, it's not, oh, we will travel in a different way with better technology. It's we should not travel. That's the actual goal of this. And, you know, if you look at something like the Green New Deal or the Joe Biden climate policy, it will actually impoverish Americans. I mean, I would really like to see this story get more attention, because if there's anything that could convince people to rethink climate catastrophism, it would be the idea that flying is going to become more miserable. Like the average person would say no amount of warming could be worse than making flying more miserable. No, I mean, I agree totally with what you're saying. Like the, um, one of the areas where I think we are most accused of straw manning our opponents is in this idea that they're against development and against progress. But the, this is actually, I think, unquestionable that their policies as a matter of fact and then for the leadership their goal as a matter of conscious in intention is to oppose progress here like if you were concerned with progress you would think how can we make flying better 
Like, how can we make flying faster? How can we make it more enjoyable and more comfortable? Make sure that more people can do it more, make it more affordable. Um, and, you know, if you think about food, it's like, how can we make enriched food? How can we make it um, more resilient against uh, pests? How can we make it more nutritious? And there again, it's something that the green the greens oppose with GMOs and um, with kind of large scale farming or in energy. It's like, how can we actually get cheaper, more abundant energy? How can we quickly scale non CO2 energy if, if we think that that's necessary, in which case you'd be a, a very proud champion of nuclear in area after area. The track record is opposing progress. And um, I forget who said it, but uh, it, it might have been Carl Jung, but it was it, it's this idea that like if you want to judge people's motives, just look at the consequences of their actions. And the consequences of the actions of the Greens is to oppose progress in every area of life. And so your conclusion should be that really is what they're after. That really is the goal. And you know, they the nice thing about them is that they're actually upfront about that. You know, if you read them, um, now, some people, some environmentalists will, you know, try to carve out a position that says that there's room for technology and progress. I think they get rid of the preconditions. But, uh, you know, I've been spending the last few weeks reading kind of the the founding fathers of environmentalism. And these ideas are there from um, Muir uh, and further back of the, these kind of leading figures who thought that no nature needs to be protected from human beings. And what progress means is our footprint on nature becomes bigger. And that is the mortal sin. That is the thing that we cannot do. And, you know, this is just, I think, a stark example. And the reason that it's so stark is precisely because here's a case that like, this is the perfect test case. If you, if you really value to test, do you really value energy and what we can do with energy? And you're just concerned with climate because in every other area, there's at least this semi-plausible, oh, oil has, oil and gas and, and coal have substitutes, right? Like, oh, we can make EV cars work. We can make solar and wind power a grid. And as we've outlined uh, on this podcast and as Alex talks about in his book, that is not actually true, but it's at least plausible. Here's a case where you can't pretend to have a substitute, right? Like there is no, you know, you're not going to stick a solar panel on the roof of a 747 and have it achieve anything. And so it's basically, all right, we have a choice about flying or not flying. That is the choice we confront. And their, their view is, yeah, not flying. And, um, and the scary thing is that given that there are not actually substitutes in all of these other areas, that in reality, it's not just flying. It's everything that we need affordable, reliable energy from. Uh, like that is what it is at risk if you know these policies get enacted. So um, it is really important to think about the goal of a movement and getting clear on the goal and then asking, do I share this goal? Because if you whitewash it or allow them to whitewash it, then you don't erase the fact that that's what's actually being pursued. All right. Looks like we have time for one more story, which is good because I have one that I think is uh, a little fun. And basically it's that we have 
millennial generation now blaming climate change for their small savings. So apparently 88% of millennials accept that climate change is happening, according to this story. And where is this coming from? So I, I read this in uh, Market Watch. And 69% say it will impact them in their lifetimes. And so the, the one way that this is manifested in what is being called eco-anxiety and with 72% of millennials saying their emotional well-being is affected by the inevitability of climate change compared with just 57% of people uh, over the age 45. And in particular, what they said is, why should I save then for my when the future is so uncertain? Now, partly I consider this a genuine tra tragedy and that I think it reflects how damaging apocalyptic movements can be and that they encourage people to be fearful in short range. Um, I mean, this is true of every apocalyptic movement. And, uh, but when you have one that gains national promise, prominence, then you can really have a damaging effect on people. And uh, I, I would not be surprised if there's people who really do not take long-range actions because they're wor worried about stuff like this. But on the other hand, I mean, this is a very handy rationalization for people who don't want to accept responsibility for their own lives. Uh, and parenthetically, who nevertheless want power to control other people's lives. And um, the, the report goes on to note that climate change may also have a direct and devastating uh, effect on climate on the finances of young people. Uh, apparently a 2016 report from the environmental advocacy organization, next gen climate said that, uh, the median 21 year old, uh, college graduate of the class of 2015 will lose over 126,000 in income over her lifetime to climate change induced costs and 180,000, $187,000 in wealth. If that income were to have been saved and invested, this is from a study called The Price Tag of Being Young. Stefan, I don't know if you looked that up, but I mean, my guess is that those figures are just made up. Yeah, but so in perspective, I'm not sure that they are like for sort of lifetime savings. I don't think they, they sound like so much. So it's like the Ted Nordhaus situation. Ted Nordhaus is a, is a um, economist who sort of pioneered in this uh, climate cost um, issue, like, you know, projecting how much uh, will climate impacts uh, put a drain on the economy. And so so he won a Nobel uh, Prize in economics for that. But he also found that if you really read into it, the climate costs that, that could be genuinely assumed aren't actually that great. You know, if you think about 50 years or 100 years down the road, you know, if you're losing this, like for an individual person, sounds like a lot of money. But if you think about, you know, how much money a college graduate will probably receive in 2030, 2050, uh, that doesn't sound that much. But yeah, of course, the numbers are completely um, invented in the sense that think about how difficult it is to project the you know, average surface temperature, let alone the entire climate system over the next 50 years or the next 30 years or whatever. And then put on top of that, 
impact projections, you know, what will this actually do to agriculture, to the biosphere, to the cryosphere, to the oceans and so on. That's even more uncertainty. And then on top of that comes an economic model trying to project, okay, what will a college graduate in, you know, math or econ economics or, you know, business administration, whatever is on vogue then, uh, you know, earn less or, or feel an impact on that. That's, I mean, there's, there are so many assumptions that go into this. There can't be a real number. Right. And the question is always as opposed to what, because right. the assumption is in effect, if, if things just went on as before and climate didn't change, but that's not the alternative that's being proposed. The alternative that's being proposed is something like the green new deal. And what, like it, by any reasonable metric, you know, that would have catastrophic costs on people's ability to earn an income. So like you, one of the, there's, there's just this common phenomenon of like, you have these numbers in a vacuum and even setting aside that they're made up, like what, what you always want to compare are the different decisions that can be made and what are, you know, your estimates of those. And so if the estimate is the green new deal or not, uh, you know, as you pointed out, like, all right, $126,000 less income over my life, but I'm still overall five times as rich as my parents. Um, like that is a, that is not a, a, like that is a reasonable burden. If the alternative is, you know, I'm completely obliterated in my ability to pursue my happiness by policies that restrict our freedom to use and produce energy. One other thing that was worth noting, um, most millennials said that the that financial constraints were the top reason that they weren't saving. And one of the people profiled in the story admits that, you know, it wasn't climate change that was the only factor in his decision to opt out of a 401k. He also um, found that that would that continuing to uh, deduct money from his paycheck for savings would make it hard for him to pay rent and afford the cost of living in Los Angeles. And I mean, I found that really interesting because like one of the factors driving up housing and rental costs in places like LA are Nimbian green opposition to development that makes it more, you don't have enough housing for these places and therefore housing is more expensive. The cost of everything goes up. And so, uh, you know, to the extent that there really are challenges that young people face in savings from these kinds of things, I mean, I think that um, the green movement deserves its share of blame versus the fossil fuel industry, which has lowered the cost of every good in our economy. And I mean, really made our economy possible so that we can have cities and so that people can earn, you know, millions of dollars over the course of their lifetime and worry about uh, and be able to cope with long term challenges. All right, that's it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me, Don Watkins, at don at industrialprogress.net. Also, if you have any interest by a speech by Alex, by me, or anyone else from our team, we've got a growing lineup of great speakers at different price points, and you can email me about that at don at industrialprogress.net. And if you're interested in help with messaging, if you are an organization that has high-stakes messaging projects and you'd like possibly to be a client of ours, let me know about that as well. 
the most important thing that you can do to support this show and support your own energy education is go to alexepsteinlist.com. And if you subscribe there, you'll get our weekly newsletter and you'll also get our energy clarity email course, which is extremely popular. All right. Uh, Alex will probably be back next week, but we as the podcast certainly will. So until then, this has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.